Good day, disruptors and curious minds. Jeremy Gilbertson and Mr. Mark Fielding here for another episode of Thinking on Paper. Mark, what is shaking today? You look cozy. You look bundled up. What's happening? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, this hoodie is huge. Um, no, I'm great. I'm great. Um, what have I been doing this week? Um, I've got so many things cooking. The kitchen's on fire. That's the, that, There's a lot going on. Um, I guess the interesting thing for me this week personally was, have you heard of Adam verse, uh, A T O M verse, Adam A D I M. No, uh, uh-uh. so this is another collaborative storytelling platform, and I've been accepted in to to participate. Now, this one's quite interesting, and I guess we should try and have on one day. But it's founded by Robert um, McElhenney. So the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so he's got some big Hollywood backing. And friend of this podcast, Van Jensen, is a story creator in Adamverse. And he, like him and other storytellers, create these projects. And then they bring on other people from the Adam community to help kind of build out these projects. And I've just been accepted. So that's been the highlight of my week congratulations that's amazing i can't wait to can't wait to see the output please share it and uh yeah it's another another one of these web3 platforms which are great in theory but they don't pay the bills yet yet don't forget the yet part um all right well so today's episode i think i want to tee up in in an interesting way there's a tie-in to storytelling right um with a lot of the things we do you know as writers as storytellers as creators um, but storytelling and marketing are really closely related. And, you know, I, 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 it always points back to like, you know, kind of to me a little bit of next generational stuff. Like what should the people coming up through school, the kids, the, the college kids and all that, what should they be learning and what would help them out? And I was like, man, someone needs to teach like the math or as you might say, the maths of storytelling, right? And because there's this, there are formulas, right? I just got finished with a, a fantastic book that goes through all of these different formulas, like you know the hero's journey that we all know about with Joseph Campbell. There's other formulas like the rebirth, the voyage and return, tragedy, comedy, like all of these different, all of these different frameworks for telling stories. And it's actually a bit of a short circuit into our limbic system, into the emotional context of how we digest things. And, you know, that should be taught, that should be taught in school, like fundamentally foremost, like here it is. Um, But then I started thinking there's an interesting balance, right? Because if we're learning these formulas to connect to people's limbic systems, you know, where does the authenticity and this, you know, potential manipulation of limbic system come into play? So those were the things I've been thinking of. Is yeah. the limbic system the reptile brain? Is that the stuff that is the limbic one you can't control that just kind of works below the surface subconsciously? Or is that it's kind of where all the emotion context comes from, right? The emotional nature of us is is that piece of the puzzle. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, with that, with that random and <laughs> uh cross-connected tee up, I think what we're talking about today is how to tell stories in in an effort to grow. Uh, an idea, a concept from an idea and a concept to a funded initiative to a product that scales and and does really cool things. And our guest today has such an amazing amount of experience in this, not only from creating her own fashion brand and company, 
but also being a part of uh, marketing new companies that are that turn you know ideas into you know founder initiative into companies and products, uh, but also investing in them and and trying to pick out which ones are the best to elevate through the process. So without further ado, I want to welcome uh, our guest, Angela Brasington. We're super excited to have her join from New York. Angela, how are you? Welcome to Thinking on Paper. Hi, everyone. I'm doing well. I'm doing great this fine Thursday morning here. How's everybody doing there? Man, we're in good shape. Uh, probably better than I deserve. I'm in my second cup of coffee. Uh, my coffee situation, if you were listening last week, has gotten better. Um, there are no more bugs in it, and uh, I'm feeling good about it. So that's a nugget for those who've been listening uh, in a long, in a long <laughs> way. But Angela, give us a little bit uh, more context uh, into your background. I always like to ask, like, what are the specific beats in your journey through all of these different things that you have been doing and you've done in the past? that have now been this kind of magnetic pull into what you're doing, what you're doing today. I love telling this story. It's, it's fun for me. I love hearing everybody's stories about how they got where they are in their career. And mine's pretty interesting. So as you mentioned, I, I have had a clothing brand. My first foray into entrepreneurialism was uh, after spending 10 years in the fashion industry, really working in the business of fashion, all different aspects, I launched my own brand in a very saturated market. I wanted to make everything in the U.S. And so I produced in Manhattan and surrounding boroughs, created a great loyal brand following. We walked New York Fashion Week runway shows, LA Fashion Week, got into some great boutiques alongside some designers that I was really excited about. Um, But what I really noticed is um, a lot of fellow entrepreneurs were asking me for help with their marketing or branding or social or some of the business components that surrounded launching a new business. And they, it was interesting to me because my degree is actually in marketing. It's what I studied, although very different today versus what you know, you're studied and taught in textbooks. Um, but what I found was, it's funny that you started this whole uh, a podcast about around storytelling because that is what really did it for me. What I saw with these other brands was they were basically shilling their styles, their designs out to their audience. Why should any new customer uh, expect, trust, want a new brand without knowing anything about it? Um, especially when it's so easy today for returns and to know your size with certain brands that you trust. So what I did was exactly what you said. It was all about telling the story of the brand and the designer behind it, why they made this creation. That's when people can start to relate and say, oh, I need to try this, or I love that story, or whatever it might be. That In 2015 is when I started, pretty much a year after I launched my own brand and, and have, was constantly generating brand awareness. Uh, going out and networking, that's when I saw this need for coming in to really help some startups get their hands around the business, their hands around the market, how to really differentiate um, and attract new customers to a brand new company brand. Um, and it was super exciting for me. I loved it. It was what I was definitely better at than designing clothing. Um, and so in 2016, I was introduced to a client that needed blockchain marketing. And it was a very exciting time for me because I had kind of gotten my formula, my storytelling formula down pat. 
I was excelling. My revenue from the marketing business was well outperforming the clothing brand. So it was this exciting time where I was eager to get a new client. At, at that time, it was mostly fashion, beauty, some healthcare, um, one tech client at the time, but not blockchain. So for me to get involved with this, A, booming new exciting technology was, was, I was super ready and eager to do it. But then once I started going down that rabbit hole, that infamous rabbit hole that we all do, is when I really, it really piqued my interest and everything clicked for me. What I saw was some of the things um, that was going on where everybody, every blockchain client that I had seen at that time was very complex in their jargon, in their marketing as a whole. And I would explain to them, you know, people still don't understand blockchain at this time. How are they going to understand your solution or the problem you're solving here if it's so complex and jargon heavy? So I took the same exact approach as I did with the marketing and beauty and fashion brands and told their story in a very stripping away all of the jargon and really explaining what the solution was doing in lay people's terms. And that worked. And it worked really well. I think two part, obviously that was a new way of looking at, marketing a blockchain company. Um, and two, there weren't a ton of boutique blockchain marketing agencies at that time for me to compete with. So through word of mouth, the business just grew uh, incrementally. It was wild. It was a really exciting, fun time and super educational time for me to learn all about, you know, coming from marketing these Web2 brands to full-on Web3 solutions. It's a different game. A very different game, and it's uh, a practice that really needs to be uh, honed in on well. And you have to understand what you're doing. You can't just shove it out into the market and hope it's going to work. Awesome. Yeah, that's so. So I want to. I definitely want to dive down the rabbit hole of like web web three marketing in in the first round of this, like 2020 ish, right? And kind of what's happening now. But let's. I want to pull the thread back a little bit um, on how do you balance uh, uh, working with a founder, working with a company that has pressures for growth and, you know, you're there, they want to just scream their message from the mountaintop. It's like akin to like not having a conversation, but like shouting at somebody just because you want to get your point across. Right. How do you, how do you balance and say, Hey, we have to be patient. We have to tell the story. We can't just kind of shout at people and tell them to buy stuff. How do you balance that? Cause I know it can be like they're, they're, they're focused, but they're also, they've got funding and they need to generate returns. So how do you generate a balance for them? I really like to talk through with the founders exactly this method, method uh, this approach that is really formulaic really in, in how it works. Now it's tedious. It's time consuming to really do it right. And what I, what you see sometimes is projects or founders that are like, well, I don't have the time to do all of that because I'm building the platform or I'm building my team or I'm trying to get funding. But those that actually take the, what I call the engagement formula and double down on it and do it really well and set a team on that to nonstop daily, consistently around the clock, engaging and not selling your product, engaging with potential users with other brands that could be strategic partners where you're infiltrating their communities and then they hopefully are infiltrating yours and you are expanding the size of your community in doing so. But you're not, again, you're not out there shilling everything to these communities. You're providing value. You're being a thought leader in the way that makes sense to whatever 
you know, their project is or whatever the tweet that you might be engaging with is, you're providing specific value that makes sense. And also then your people start to see either your avatar or yourself continually providing this value and being a thought leader in the space where they need to, they want to come over and check you out and see what you're doing without you having to say, by the way, check out da-da-da.io, you know, you can do this in a really, and, and it works and it works every time that you have a project that is willing to put in the time, effort and budget to make that happen. I'm a, I'm a sucker for frameworks. And, and, and so quick shout out, Steve Brett, uh, marketing guru on the, in the chat. Uh, good to hear you. Would love your thoughts and questions as well. Thanks for joining. Um, Angela, uh, you mentioned it sounded like a framework, an engagement model or engagement process. What 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 was that? Tell me about that. Yeah, it's, it's the engagement formula. It's my secret sauce. But really, um, it, it means just that. So you're you are. There's a lot of research involved where you have to go in and figure out who are the brands that um, are are similar to you in some way. Who are brands or projects out there? whose audience would also like your product or solution that would make sense to them. So the research is really important because if you're just out there engaging with random accounts or random people, you're not going to get the same results. But if you set up the formula in a way where you're targeting the correct potential partners, potential users, potential people of interest in your product and be that thought leader, provide value that's, again, not showing your project, provide value for the overall ecosystem that the users are currently talking about engaging in. It's all about meeting them where they are. How should Web3 or brands in general think about how they communicate to Web3 natives, Web2 aficionados, and those people in between? How, how, how should the messaging be adapted for each of those? Yeah, it's, and it's really important, right? Because they are different audiences, which then means different messaging. So I think it's very important to sort of leverage your marketing tactics to generate the interest and attention for those different audiences. Fine tuning the messaging is one of the most important things. You really have to be able to speak. Uh, it's just like meeting them where they are, right? To be able to speak to them uh, at a place that they're currently understanding. And sometimes that means separate marketing. Sometimes that means some different um, uh, campaigns that focus on each different audience. Um, for the real Web3 natives, you might consider an ad in, in a metaverse that's currently active, that has partners, that has daily users and things like that, not just some random metaverse because that really will provide no value. Um, and then with the Web2 folks, really, again, uh, meeting them where they are and speaking to them a little bit more in the Web2 tune meaning you don't need to use any of the, the jargon. You don't need to even say blockchain. It, it comes back to really what the solution is that we're talking about. Um, but for the majority of solutions out there, it is simply solving a problem. Um, if there are rewards in it, it's like loyalty. Think of it like that. So meeting them and figuring out how to what the solution is and how you can explain that in a lay people's terms, but be in those two different voices as well. Yeah, going going back to what you were saying earlier, the the um, instead of shilling or or shouting like we ne- mentioned earlier, you know, the desire you founders are passionate, right? And and they want to tell the world about what they're doing. And sometimes they can just I've done it myself, like you know, and I've tried to learn a little bit, um, but it's harder to think about like, how can I authentically connect 
with this person, not in a way to sell them today, but to grow the relationship over the next three months, over the next six months, provide value in everything I do from a communication perspective. Um, it's, it's really, it's really the harder thing to do, but the right thing to do, right? It, it absolutely is. And I often talk to projects that I'm, I'm working with advising and tell them to treat it like a family, you know, what you're building as a community, it's not just all about selling it. There's more to it. There, there is, um, this community vibe where we can all get together and be friends on top of just a customer of a platform, which is very different from how it was in, or how it is in web two. Um, and I, I think that's, that's really a, a crucial part of, of all of it, honestly. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. We, so we, we've this, so this is probably a good time. We got a great question from Mark Calamia, uh, who's in the production marketing emerging tech space as well. And, um, he, he, he asked if you could share a, like a, like an example or a case study of a web three project that you helped launch that kind of challenged, uh, conventional wisdom related to the marketing approach. And, and if so, was it, was it an outcome that, that surprised everybody that was like, wow, you know, this, this is really different and it really worked. Yeah, I, I, I think that the first thing that came to my head when I saw that question, Mark, was, was this whole um, way of engaging because, and I say that because it's a formula that I've used and seen work. It's a formula that I've seen projects decide not to use and the results were obviously in line. Um, and it, every single time that I have a client that proceeds and uses this, this engagement secret sauce, they're not only surprised, but very delighted because the way I spell it out to them in advance is what you put in is what you get out. Seems pretty obvious, but the truth is if we want to make that 30 minutes a day, seven days a week, you're going to grow, but it's going to be a very slow, gradual growth. And that's okay for some, but if you can do it right and double, triple, quadruple down on that formula, that's when you really see results. And the results are different from you know, having a shiller out there just, uh, or an influencer that's just going to shill for you that really doesn't care about the project. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very different game because the audience that you're attracting actually cares and you start to see them communicate back. You start to see them become ambassadors of your brand or project without you asking them to do it. And that's when you really take the engagement formula to the success formula and it becomes this and it's really an ongoing cycle because you don't stop it. The minute you stop, everyone walks away. And I've seen that happen time and time again as well. Um, so yes, it's tedious. It's time consuming. It's not really anything explosive or out of this world, but it's something that so few projects do because of the amount of effort and work involved in it. And that's, I think, the part that surprises me the most, especially when we have solid results showing the growth from doing this particular type of work. And when I say that, it's not just, oh, I'm commenting for seven hours a day and, and DMing people for seven hours. It means being truly engaged in that activity and what you're doing. Joining Twitter spaces, raising your hand to speak, again, providing that value, hosting Twitter spaces, having a consistent place where your community or potential community members can come to and look to, to know that they can learn something from you also learn more about the project and figure out how to get engaged. And another fun aspect of it is the community is usually meeting each other as well. So once they grow and become tighter knit together, it strengthens the overall community for the project as well. 
I love that. This kind of cross-pollination of communities is something which is being more and more spoken about. And I wonder, I mean, like, I don't know, like a dream scenario, you have a new brand, you have a, a, a fashion brand, and they can literally airdrop to the, I don't know, um, art blocks, the whole art blocks community, like this, they can airdrop no link to the art blocks community, but everyone who's in the art blocks, that they are of a certain financial demographic. I mean, there are brands which would be perfect. And they can airdrop to it and it kind of piggyback on that community that's already established. And, and brands can do this today. I mean, are there any, have you seen any brands that are doing this successfully or who are looking at this as a way to increase their presence? Love it. Love that question. Yes, I have. And I also think it's a big miss for brands that aren't doing it. So remember when uh, ApeCoin airdropped all the Ape tokens to Board Ape Yacht Club holders? Uh, Gucci jumped on board and was like, oh, there's this new community of people that are holding these free coins, free money. And often a lot of them were a lot of money that they were like, that could be, they could use that in our store. So this luxury retail sector, and we've seen it with Tiffany's as well and, and some others, but I think that is a real, what is it, an $8 trillion industry is the retail industry. And a lot of them are not tapping into crypto because they're scared or they think, oh my gosh, I have to change my whole business model to include blockchain. I don't know how to do it. No, you simply have to accept crypto. And if you can accept a, you know, a coin like ApeCoin at that time especially made a lot of sense. Um, but as we continue, we have to think like that. And these bigger retail brands that can easily implement something like that, because it's not changing a lot of their um, internal systems or anything like that. They're, again, accepting crypto. All they had to do is accept ApeCoin, and it did a number for them. They, they increased their sales with a new audience that they never had before. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. Um, obviously, we've got the Nike and Adidas who have been doing a lot of different things different customer base though than the luxury market, uh, but also very in tune. That that has a little bit more of a Web3 customer already in some aspects of their uh, audience. So I think tapping into that is is also good for that level of brand. But in general, I think the, the Gucci and 8-point example is something that other luxury retail should really be looking a little closer at because it's low-hanging fruit. It's something they can do right away. It's an audience that they haven't tapped into yet that is sitting there waiting with all of these free coins for some of them and earned coins for other of them, mm-hmm. others of them, uh, that they can use at their retail stores. And that, that's something that they can use without the the danger of putting off their existing audience, which like for a luxury brand especially. That's why they all use separate Twitter accounts, isn't it? They don't want to merge the two. By doing this, they could almost bypass their, their existing audience and go straight there and not have to worry about, if they do it correctly, the 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 the, the, the secondary damaging effects of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. And I think that leads also to this invisib- invisibility layer that is very, very crucial for brands. And when I say that, I mean similar to like what Starbucks did with their loyalty rewards. They're not calling it an NFT and, and tokens and wallets. They made it seamless. And similarly to how today we search for flights or hotels online, we don't know what database is being called on to, to get us that information. We just know we get our flights and we can book. 
that's the level we need to be at for true, you know, mass onboarding into Web3. And the brands that do that really well are the brands that are going to pave the way for everyone else. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting point. And, and just the idea of the automation, I kind of think about it as like the automation of audience composability, I guess, in a way where you can like share these audiences rather quickly, right? And you have to do it the right way because if you if you work a deal and and you know just because the automation's there and the story isn't then it you know it'll get squashed pretty quick uh but i but i think it could be interesting i want to talk about um every all markets have a language right all kind of communities have a language and um some words or some you know collections of words can be rather polarizing uh, to adoption, right? So I want to get your take on a couple of words, get your hot take on a couple of words. I have my own personal take. I'm not going to share it. Uh, and I'm going to let you do yours first, but, um, utility, what, what is, what, when someone says my project has utility or I'm working on creating utility, uh, how does that land with you? Show me the money. No, I want to see that you really have utility. What does that mean? Are, are you um, simplifying it? And, you know, your utility means I can log onto your site or is there true utility? Am, am, am I getting some exclusive access? Uh, am I able to engage with a certain group that can provide me value? What really is that utility? And I think that's, that is going to be along with real, like we talked about before, real use cases, docs, teams, experience, and credibility. Utility. Utility is, is, it should have always been very important from the, from the get, but I think sometimes that was passed over in this, uh, you know, the height of the bull run where you just have projects, projects, projects coming in, new ideas, pretty decks, get funded, fail, um, because there was no proper utility. I think that's going to be very important, but uh, again, like many things, you can gloss over it. So for me, it's about taking the gloss off seeing what's down uh, and dirty in the, in the true meaning of their utility and going from there. What, what did Jeremy, what you said you had an opinion. Cause I, I think the, the word utility is, it's just like focusing on the word. It's an ugly word that came from as a rebound to 2021. I think that just like, it was a, the, an, something to correct what was happening with the, with the roadmaps and like there was nothing there and it became a word from that. How are you thinking about it, Jeremy? Well, it, it kind of aligned with, with Angela, there's got to be like meat, right? There's got to be like, what's the, what, what's behind this word that supposedly collect the secret sauce of what you're building, right? Utility to me, after the first round of Web3, uh, it seemed like just this, this easy button that people were like, oh yeah, I've got utility or we just have to figure yeah. out utility and we're going to make a million bucks. To me, utility ended up being like this idea of engineered value, which made it a little disingenuous to me, right? If something is valuable, something has value to somebody, let's call it value. I, I'm nitpicking, right? I'm nitpicking, but this is where it kind of lands with me. And you hit it, you hit it too, Angela, is like, what's the value of this experience, right? Um, and utility now, I think, as people are still using that word as, yeah, well, this project has this, this utility, it's like, well, let's just talk about the value, right? You know, it just turns, it turns me, it puts me in a different mindset when someone calls yeah. it that directly, I guess. I like that. All right. I got another word. I got another word. And unfortunately, another personal opinion on the word too. Um, <laughs> what, what about the, and, and I, I don't even like to say this, fidgetal. <laughs> What's your take on fidgetal? 
man, when that first was coming, I was, I was at these conferences, I think in Vegas and LA last year and it was digital, 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 everything. And I was so annoyed with the words. I get it. I mean, it's a, a physical representation or a digital asset representing a physical asset. I get it all. I think we can do better. I think we can do a lot better if you ask me. Um, sometimes these words are created because it's like, okay, we have this new tech. How do we explain some of the things that are derived, that are becoming as a result of it? And then we get these crazy words. I don't know. I mean, that one is fine. It makes it's it, it's a physical digital. You know, it's a digital representation of a physical asset. I get it. I'm just over the word. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think I'm in the same the same boat. You know, you know, be, being you know, Mark and I both come from the the writer background, and you know, words are very important to us. You know, words are important to everybody, but fidgetal is one of those things when you know I see it, I'm I automatically like kind of check out to another filter that's like, yeah, I'm I'm going somewhere else in this yeah. conversation, maybe right, uh, which is hard. Like it goes back to the we we talk about this all the time. The the human brain loves shortcuts. We, we've used this example before. It's why Steve Jobs wore the same stuff every day, like literally the same thing to avoid what we call decision fatigue, right? Um, so the brain leans on shortcuts, but sometimes those shortcuts send us in the wrong spot too early, even when there's value in the equation because we use the wrong word. Completely agree with that. Completely agree with that. And I saw that happening with that word, like I said, last year. <laughs> so so Angela, what's what's the tricky part about marketing the future? What's the tricky part about marketing uh, emerging tech? I think the trickiest part is really educating everybody on what it is because we're not just now chilling a project, right? We, we have to educate people on new technologies, on new opportunities of the technology and then explain solutions and, and why those solutions are even necessary because that's a big thing too. Sometimes people are like, why do we need a new web or a new web? Why do we need this or that or the other? Because it's streamlining old processes because it's making things more efficient. And when we can explain and really truly educate people in a simple to understand in a conversation like this way, um, that's when we can get through and, and make a difference. And I think what I really like about Web3 marketing versus Web2, I felt very like the need to be corporate or um, almost too professional in previous marketing. Whereas here, you know, it can go both ways. It, we, we hear a lot about the wild, wild west. Yes, but if we can take that and pull it back a little bit and kind of mash up the professionalism along with the... Um, the web three sort of be your own self, be your own person mentality. Again, it's where we can speak to people on these normal terms where, um, it, where it seems to really get through to people and start making sense and then start growing a community and then start using real solutions and then start seeing real change. It's a great point. You think about it, you know, going back to the shouting shouting your stuff from the mountaintops or just on from the street corner using buzzwords and jargon like you know nodes and blocks and you know all of these other you know tech driven jargon because a lot of the ideas in this in this evolution of uh, of web3 have largely come from technical founders right so technical founders communicate with a certain language to build these things but then you know that's why it's so critical and i think steve uh, Brett in the chat mentioned this kind of being this translator, right, for the tech 
founders into like the, the humanity, how to translate that into a story that resonates. Would you call yourself a translator, Angela? I love that when I read Steve's comment. I think that's really great because it actually is a lot like that. Um, you are explaining, if you think about it, developers, coding is language, right? Developers are very great at coding, but sometimes not at getting the message across. So for me, it's about, especially if I have a technical founder that I'm working with, it's about really deciphering what they're doing because sometimes it's some innovative, really great stuff where even I have to be like, okay, put my learning hat on right now and truly understand what this is so that I can market it. And that's something I always say is I have to understand fully what a project or solution is doing before I can market it because if I can't understand it, I can't market it. Um, and then the, the community audience won't, won't be able to either. Well, Angela, I heard you recently actually put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You you recently uh, got a coding certification, did I see? Or you actually dove into doing some coding? I did. I was so, you know, I work with developers all the time through these projects. And I thought, you know, if I could just learn a little bit of coding, maybe I could speak to them on that level. And then I could market on a greater level. And I had these big dreams. And I thought, well, I've never coded a day in my life. How am I, where do I even start? And a friend of mine is actually builds coding curriculums and she got me into a class. I did a full semester class, started in January and I just wrapped up and I started with HTML, then CSS, then learned the bootstrap library, and then I finished JavaScript. And it has been an incredible journey to learn. Man, I don't know, I feel like, and of course those are very still basic foundation. If I'm talking to a developer, that doesn't sound very sexy, but for me, it was amazing to just learn and understand the foundational aspect of what coding is. So I, I'm thrilled. I'm going to continue learning new languages after that and next semester. <laughs> so I'm excited. Has it, been, has it been surprisingly difficult or surprisingly easy to, to learn? What was the most surprising for me, and I, I heard this before, but once I got doing it, is that coders don't repeat their code. They, they, they pull and they tweak and they use libraries. You never, ever type out, retype code. So I was like, hmm, this is interesting. So is everybody just stealing everybody's work? But then I started to learn and understand that's why these libraries exist, you know, because we don't need to remake re -make the wheel or whatever you call it. Um, it. It's already out there. Then we need to tweak it and make it our own. I started, I've been playing a lot with artificial intelligence just to learn and study that myself. And I started even using it to understand code. Some of my... Uh, problems that I was solving, I would solve it one way and then I'd throw it into ChatGPT to see what they answered. And what I really liked about it was after they gave you your code, which might have been different than mine because there are many ways to solve a problem, essentially what coding is, then they broke down exactly why they did the code that way. So I got all of this extra learning outside of my class. Very cool stuff. Okay, Let, don't, Jeremy, don't ask a question about AI. We're not going down there. We can't, we can't hit the, we only got five or seven minutes. We can't hit the AI rabbit hole today. Yeah. yeah. I thought we were going to get a whole episode without going down there. Can I bring it back then? Because I want to um, bring it back to brands and measurable Web3 indicators. Because a lot of the brands I speak to, they understand, like Twitter, how, how can I base my project on the success of my project on how many Twitter followers I have or how many, what the engagement is like in a Discord channel? Like, how. How are successful brands thinking about KPIs? I know it's very boring, but they want to measure their failures or measure their successes. What are they, what are they using and what should they be using if they're not? 
all of those metrics we can still use, you know, your, your Twitter analytics, your email analytics, if you have an email uh, system. But also, I think it's ever so important that we get our potential users to really dive in and try and test out your product. You have to be able to prove that you have a viable business model, a solution, product, um, even investor interest. So if you're able to prove to an investor that you have a viable model through efforts that you've already done, meaning you're not just, again, creating that deck and going for the funding, you're proving through, you know, generating, you know, getting new users on board and having them actually use your platform. That means putting in the work before you're asking for money. It's very important in the past in Web3, we've been able to see that happen time and time again. I don't see that being the same in our next cycle next year. Um, it's, it's going to be very important that we can show that we have um, a, a use case, that we have users that are truly interested in wanting to use our product on a daily basis. Um, so doing, setting up your own um, activities to be able to do that within your platform or, or what, what, what you've built, built, or even tooling that is out there is going to be so necessary. And that helps you, it helps the project team learn about what's working and what's not. It helps get feedback from users that are testing out your product or platform. And all of that stuff is beyond crucial because before you actually roll out something to the public audience, you wanna make sure all of those bugs are captured or any, anything that doesn't work in the game is, is uh, solidified, fixed and, and ready to go. Because if not, you can really damage everything that you tried so hard to build or work for or get funding for if you realize that too late in the game. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I have some, have some ideas too, to, to, to think about as well. The KPI question is great. Um, first of all, quick shout outs to our folks over on volume.com. Ben Holston team over there watching and chiming in talking about how they're anxious about web three, but wanting to kind of learn more. So that's our new streaming partner uh we're over there today hi guys uh glad to be there and then uh joseph and rick in our chat here uh talking about jargon becoming outdated really quickly absolutely you lock into something old and, it, and it's out and you reference it when you're trying to position something new it's autumn it's again back to that shortcut um so to the kpis angela i always think about I relate this to sales, right? So if if I'm a salesperson and you know I have a sales manager that reports to me, um, you know the first thing they're going to do is is I mean they obviously want to make sure I'm hitting some sales goals, right? So there's a goal at the top, uh, but they can't go to me on my first day and be like, hey Jeremy, did you hit your 100k goal? There are ways to measure it, right? So then we look at we look at how many proposals are in the pipeline, then we look at how many meetings you're having, and then we look at how many conversations you're having, the types of conversations, and all of that to be able to celebrate the wins. Cause I think it's really important in what you talked about being authentic and connecting um, to your audience rather than shouting at them. Uh, how can uh, a founder celebrate wins, small wins uh, along the way before they get to the sale, right? Cause it's a longer process. How do you, how do you inspire them to, to, to celebrate a win? As an entrepreneur, my mindset is celebrate the small wins. I, I fully, fully believe that. And that goes, you know, for across the board. We have to celebrate those small wins. So if we're talking on the follower metrics, you know, five followers or five new followers. But the thing is, you have to engage them and you have to keep them there. Otherwise, they will go away and stop following you. Um, with your users who are testing out your product, 
I love to gamify that a little bit. I think when you gamify it, it gets them more hyped, it gets them more excited. Uh, and then you get better results. You get better feedback on what's going on with the project because you're probably through those, uh, you're probably prompting them to do different things or explore different areas of your platform. Um, and so that feedback to me is a major win too. Even if it's negative feedback, it's something that you can go and change on your platform or make better or, you know, uh, do in a better way for your users. Um, so I, I think that is one of my most important things is really um, that user feedback from the initial users that you have on board, making it fun for them and gamifying it. Uh, lots of different things that you can do creatively, strategically. Um, I, I'm hesitant to say contests, but contests are really fun. Again, a gamified feature that gets people active and excited. But if you're only doing it for some big giveaway that is like $1,000 USDC or something like that, you're going to find that you get a lot of people that are coming in just for the giveaway, just for that uh, cash money, and they don't really give a hoot about your project. So what I like to do in that case is how can you do a giveaway that utilizes your platform, that gets people in the system and using whatever it is. Again, that gives you the feedback, that gives people a chance to play with your platform. It gives you content to be able to show your platform in use um, that then is attractive to investors or to other potential users. Uh, partnerships are massive to me as far as measuring uh, in this early stage. Partnerships are, are key. Strategic partners are something that can really take you from zero to hero. There's um, Amino brand I, I was just listening to on Fomora Pass with David, uh, I'm sorry, with Brian D. Evans and George from CryptoZorus. Amino is doing really unique things. They flipped the move to earn model on its head by focusing on strategic partners. So we all know that the play to earn, move to earn, that whole model completely is dead because it's completely unsustainable. It never was a good model. Um, it was straight hype. But now with what Amino has done, they work with some of the big, biggest brands. So in three months of launching their platform, they have 600,000 users, 10,000 daily users, and it's all thanks to the massive and the credibility of the partners they got on board, like Alo, the major yoga brand, Nike, Microsoft, the NFL. It's hard for any brand to get an NFL contract, never mind a Web3 brand. And what they did is very unique. They understood what didn't work from the old model. They focused on the revenue streams and, and their new model, and they secured massive partnerships, and they're killing it right now. Strategic partnerships, celebrate each of them and double down on them. I love it. Is this might be an ignorant question uh, for for the marketing experts that are listening? But what are is, are there tools to measure interactivity within a community, like automated tools? Like you can look at followers, you can look at um, you know kind of daily users. Is there anything to measure like the interactivity between one person and a brand? That's a great question. I think there are new tools out now that are doing that. I'm exploring some of them, actually, as we speak. Really understanding how to get all the most data that we can on our users, on our engagement, on all of that is, is very important. I haven't found a winner yet. Um, so if you hear of any, let me know, and I'll let you know <laughs> what I hear. But I'm actually digging into a few different ones. Not to go back to AI, but there is some AI tooling out there that is very helpful in these means. And if it's not out there, then I'll have to build it myself because I think I know at this point what we need to do. 
I love it. I love it. That question goes out to the community, the people in the chat, the people listening. I know we've got some marketing. Folks are you talking on, about on like yeah. wallet? Are you talking about wallet communication? Are you talking about kind of? Yeah. So, so there are two things to me, and this is a big solve. I think this is, this is a very challenging problem to solve. Like you can, you can measure how many times like a wallet interacts with, with, with a company or whatever. Right. But then you start going, okay, well, what about meaningful interaction? Right. And, and what does that mean? And then we start getting in subjective objective land, but I think it, whoever invents that is going to do some really cool things. I think, cause you know, if we have a dashboard to measure meaningful interaction, like what the hell right yeah I know doing, like interaction i don't know how you measure meaningful but um i can i can send you a link to one platform a, a guy i was talking to that was trying to solve for that but without the levels of meaningful i don't know how you measure that i yeah. think i think that can definitely be done if we think about you know how we would prompt a tool to learn and understand what we feel is meaningful i don't know very interesting. But yeah, with the wallet side, definitely tracking on-chain activity is, is a great way for marketers to really hone in on specific targets, but, um, but obviously different things than what we we're talking about here. Yep. So, so obviously marketing applied to emerging tech and marketing the future and, and storytelling for brands and being patient rather than shouting and really trying to build those meaningful interactions and building up to community is, is definitely an art and, 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 you know, there, there is part science to it. We could probably continue, um, you know, figuring this out for quite a while. I, uh, want to be mindful of time. We're coming to the end of our show. Mark, uh, do you have any closing closing thoughts or questions for our very talented and gracious guests? Yeah, I've got a couple of questions, but I don't ask them because we, we've already gone over time. So maybe I'll, I'll send a message. They're about KYCs and how that might change what's coming. And you can't market the future unless you know really what KYC will mean to, to business. So I won't ask that question now. Instead, what, what should I say? Um, for me, the most interesting part of this is like the cross-pollination of communities is brands and artists and musicians and writers using hijacking, if you want to use the word as well, kind of piggybacking off other communities to curate their own and build their own communities and brands. And I think that's, for me, the most exciting part of all this at the moment. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that is one of the most exciting parts because we can really expand greatly that way when done efficiently. Yeah. Final question for you, Angela. Just as you've gotten into the coding side, you've dipped your toe, you've met your target client base where they are. What can your target client base or what can founders, what can technical founders do to meet someone with marketing expertise where they are? What can a, de a developer do to meet a marketing person where they are? Try to really simplify what it is you're solving, what it is the developer is trying to achieve. The best way that a marketer can help a developer is through being able to uh, understand what it is and market that in a clear voice to an audience to potentially get them on board. Sometimes, you know, I, I understand that developers aren't marketers and marketers aren't developers sometimes. Um, but if we can simplify that in a bulleted list, even, I like to make it as seamless as possible for the other party. Bulleted list, and then I like to ask questions, and then that's really how you get to the bottom of it all. 
I love it. I love it. Angela, thanks so much for joining us today. Fascinating conversation about the intersection of marketing, emerging tech, storytelling. And I, I dare I dare I position this as uh, some of these problems between the disconnect between technical founders and storytellers. If we had that course in school when we're coming up on the maths, that's for you, Mark, of storytelling, you know, we we could have a common language perhaps. But anyway, reinventing the school system is a little harder than what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, I think like there's quite a long queue of things that want to be in this that should be in the school system. I'm not sure that's front of the queue. But yep, yeah. absolutely. Well, thanks, thanks for joining, Joseph. Uh, thanks for joining us as well. Everyone in the chat, Rick Julian, Steve Brett, uh, Gabriel, uh, Allison, thank you guys for jumping in and thanks to the crew from volume.com. We're streaming over there. More information on our show and what we're doing, you can check it out at thinkingonpaper.xyz. We're also putting episodes uh, recorded up on Spotify, up on YouTube. And uh, if you have a guest or an idea or you want to reach out to us about a discussion point or something, hit us up and uh, we will see you next time.